John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 588.ps12101, certificate number 39582, Jillian Hills. Jimmy, oh, Jimmy, je me souviens du collège et de la première cigarette. Is that the name of the retirement home, you and... Mindy or have already purchased a, a suite in. It does sound like there could be a woman named Beverly Hills, and this would be her sister, Jillian. Was there a Be- Beverly Hills? Why is Beverly Hills called Beverly Hills? There was a Beverly Sills. It's hard for me to say Beverly Hills. I didn't realize that until just now. Do you have to say the word Chihuahua after it, or Ninja, or Cop? Beverly Hills Chihuahua? Wait a minute. Was that a, a media property? Yes, the Beverly Hills Chihuahua Extended Universe. You haven't have been following this? <laughs> no. It's going to be half of Disney Plus, probably. Does it interact with the Mr. Rogers Extended Universe? <laughs> oh, right. Daniel Tiger, there is a Mr. Rogers Extended Universe. Beverly Hills is named for... It's named after Beverly, Massachusetts. It was the... Was that a woman? Yes, Beverly, Massachusetts is a, is a stripper. My stripper name is Beverly, Massachusetts. She was the first stripper to arrive in Southern California. She was the only stripper on the Mayflower. Nothing to me says to, says like sexy and beautiful like Massachusetts well, or Beverly. Yeah, right. But is Beverly going to come back as a name of of winsome young people? I wonder how many like six year olds right now are named Beverly, and we don't even know it. Is there a is there like a knock on Star Trek: The Next Generation effect that led to a lot of nineties nerds naming girls Beverly? Interesting. I mean, there are an awful lot of uh, of ten year olds right now named Khaleesi that are that are pretty sad. <laughs> Pretty sad about it. Mom, why didn't you give me a normal name? I believe Beverly used to be a, I mean, it was a surname, and then I think it was probably a man's given name. Sure. Like like many of those. Yeah, it sounds like somebody that worked for the CIA in the 40s. The world was full of male Samanthas and Karens for many years, and, yeah. and no one batted an eye. Uh, we were all sex positive back then. Let's bring that back. It was, More young boys named Karen. It was the West Coast thing of like naming your development after, you know, the place on the East Coast where your family came from or where your pioneers landed or right 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 to, right to give the west coast some of the portsmouth oregon or the whatever. imprimatur of the portland that's a common mistake hello it's actually called portland 
Oh, really? Yeah. I always pronounced it Portsmouth. <laughs> a lot of people say Portsmouth because they've, they've been watching Portsmouthia. Yeah. <laughs> and they get confused. You know, I bet that Karen as a boy's name is the only future for the name Karen because no one's going to name their, their daughter Karen now. It's got too much of a... Uh, yeah, the earth has been, been salted, right? Smirched. But you could name your son Karen. I just saw some, there was like a male Karin, but it, it was, it was of uh, Armenian See, descent or something like that. The Armenians will bring it back. Yeah. There you go. I, I can, I count on them. We, uh, you know, the Omnibus is an academic project and we have a high barrier of entry to what can enter the vault. That's why our Erdish number is so high. <laughs> but we do, but we do collaborate now with listeners and let, uh, allow people to request shows if they meet our, uh, our rigorous, uh, the uh, yeah, academic vetting. The vetting. What do, you, what do you call it when you have to vet somebody else's paper? Uh, uh, you, you what? Know, review peer it? Peer review. Yeah, we peer review them. There's massive peer review of all the suggestions that make it into the anonymous. But this is actually a request show of someone who did not pay a dime. Why? Why? Why do they get this free show? Yeah, I guess I shouldn't let the word. People are going to want to know. Like, it, get it, your free yeah. show on the omnibus with this one weird <laughs> trick. It's like the it's like the the Mega Millions. It's a Powerball thing. Yeah, if you win <laughs> uh, a nine figure lottery, <laughs> no, you actually have to be my younger brother. Oh, your younger brother. I saw him at a family reunion a couple weeks ago. We were on the Oregon coast, and I always forget that he's like a very. A dedicated omnibus listener, like date and day omnibus listener. Nice. Uh, and he said, hey, uh, I have a show idea for you, Jillian Hills. Hmm. And I didn't know what that meant. I thought maybe he was giving me some kind of post-hypnotic trigger, and he, he thought I would kill the president. <laughs> Jillian Hills. Jillian Hills. <laughs> Your whole childhood, he would like <laughs> hypnotize you at night. And... It's, it's the long con. Someday when Ken's in his late 40s. I'm going to use this. Did you say at this family reunion that he was actually wearing an omnibus shirt? Is that, am I outing him now as too big of a nerd? That's true. Wait, he was, right? Yeah. Did I sent you a picture. You, you did. You did. He just showed up in an omnibus shirt, and I don't think he was trying to to ingratiate himself to me in any way. It that, was an accident. It was just, just his Tuesday outfit. <laughs> <laughs> He's a in-house counsel at a tech company, a software company, but he works from home now. He can work in omnibus shirts. Do you think he listens to the show because he misses you? Oh, yeah. He just wants to hear my voice? Yeah, he's like, oh, my big brother. I, I love to hear him. Hey, Nathan, what's going on? Talk about stuff. Hey, uh, Nathan. It's me, your your other brother, John. We have a really good relationship. When you add up the number of hours he's heard me talking on Omnibus, could that be more than the amount of time we have talked to each other over the course of our lives? It's possible. How many <sighs> How many hour-long conversations do you have with a sibling? Well, especially a younger sibling. Were you were you an older brother that was just like, yeah, kid, don't bother me. I'm busy uh, reading the encyclopedia. We're like two years apart. So oh, that's close enough to have close. like childhood experiences together yeah. and be like, you know, when we were kids, ah, the two of us, what are the kids going to do, you know? Yeah, you both stared at a baseball and wondered what to do with it. What is that Look thing? at that, a ball. Hmm. It was mostly just kind of staring in... Uh, just shocked revulsion at our uh, at our cousins who were always going to get frogs and crawdads from the creek or or, or wrestling. <laughs> and your your nineteen thirties cousins, <laughs> or Utah, or Utah of the eighties, right? It's the same thing, yeah. Uh, or Utah of today, in terms of social consciousness, and just thinking, who are these? We had never seen outdoor kids before. We were like, what is this? Oh, you were indoor kids, of course. Sure, sure. I, I, you're not going to believe this, John. <laughs> Uh, by the fact that you get a farmer's tan just walking from the front door of the house to the car, 
It is a good indication. John was telling me this morning that he always thought I was a normal color, and he forgets when I show him my farmer's tan that I am a normal color Every only on my forearms, neck, and face. <laughs> Everywhere else, it's a color you don't often see on skin. Um. So, so you and he were close as children, although yeah, I think so. You know, cl- but like, we all, I think we also like fought a lot because kids, sure. you know, kids tussle. I do think about that. I don't think there's a living person that I've talked to more than Merlin Mann. Merlin, yeah. On your uh, other podcast. Uh, including, you know, I mean, maybe my mom and dad I talk to more. It would be good to have a counter. Like a little role. So in your life, you can see, hey, Merlin, you're about to pass my, you just passed my dad a year ago. You're about to pass my mom. <laughs> it's weird to think, but yeah, I mean, you, I've probably, how many shows have we done now? It's 400. It's getting, it's over 450, I think. So f- at least 450 hours, not including. Oh, it's more than I thought. This is the 493rd Omnibus. So. Almost five hundred. Well, more than five hundred hours because our shows yes. cannot cannot come in under mostly an hour. because of stuff like this, <laughs> like what's happening right now. It's not super closely related to the life and times of Jillian Hills. I can't mm, help but notice. what we're talking about right now. Right, how long you've talked to your mother versus Merlin Mann? We're triangulating to it. That's what we do. We start off over here, and then we go over there, and then we get then we get to the topic. This used to be a 40 minute show. 20 minutes in. When was it ever a 40 minute show? This is a delusion you have. It was a 40 minute show for the first two episodes. I think. And that's because Chuck Bryant was standing there going. The first two shows were closer to like 35, maybe. Somebody's going to fact check this. I I think there were a lot of 40 minute shows in the first, in the first 50. Really? Yeah. And then, and then stuff like this happened. (laughs) I don't care. (laughs) And then you said stuff like, tell me about your relationship with your brother, Ken. And that became the show. So he suggested Jillian Hills. He suggested Jillian Hills. Is he also a encyclopedia reader and a, like a, someone who cares about trivia? He has a, he has a, uh, very omnivorous. I mean, he's a curious person with a lively intelligence and a good memory uh, I think it's often when it overlaps his interests, which are maybe a little less Catholic than my, you know, a little, uh, a little more narrow. Mm-hmm. But in this case, Jillian Hills uh, is kind of at the intersection of a Venn diagram that he is it, it matches interests, and he correctly surmises perfect for omnibus. She was at the center of three different cultural movements. I mean, mem- so this is one of the Venn diagrams that looks like a flower, not one that just looks like a circle. Right. This is um, it's a Georgia O'Keeffe one, if you know what I'm saying. I do. This has a uh, film. This has music, pop music, and it has the visual arts. Jillian's at the intersection of all three of those things. Uh, uh, circle in. I mean, I'm at the intersection of all three of those things, and I've never heard of Jillian Hills. I've heard of you. There you go. Uh, QED. Uh, this uh, would be a mid-century, uh, starting in the late 50s, all the way up through the culture of the 70s and 80s. So this Ooh. intersects with both of Omnibus's obsessions, the Baby Boomers and Generation X. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to start way back in the earlier 20th century with a a type we love on Omnibus, the the British writer, adventurer, uh, read uh, philosophy at Cambridge guy who never had to work, <laughs> who never had to work, came up in the dying days, dying days of empire, mm-hmm. uh, thought the world should be a place of adventure and then was perhaps disappointed with the post-war portion of the 20th century. Tally-ho, pip-pip, and then, unfortunately... It turned out everything, you know, the empire crumbled, everything had been explored. What do you do if you are Dennis Hills, a writer, teacher, and lecturer who had spent his youth 
adventuring, biking from the Arctic to Greece. Yes, thank you. Perhaps, Hello. perhaps the first man ever to bark for, to bike from the Arctic <laughs> almost, to Greece. Almost certainly, because a series of things have to happen. First, you have to get to the Arctic somehow, and yes. then second, and even more crucially, you have to think, I need to be in Greece in a few months. Well, you uh, you also have to get a bike to the Arctic. Right. Right? You can't just get to the Arctic. It has to be somewhat easier to just get there than to take a bike there. Too. You have to get to the Arctic and rent a bike. Also, you have to be there somewhere where there are roads that go all the way to Greece. So where is that? Norway? I was wondering. The stories always say, his obituaries always say, he biked from the Arctic Circle to Greece. And I got out my globe and I thought, hmm. where on the Arctic Circle did Dennis begin? Maybe Russia. Yeah, uh, he has a lot of interest, as we'll see, in Eastern Europe. It, yeah. it w- I would not be surprised if he was... Had to be. Around, you know, up around St. Petersburg, coming down through the Baltics, whatever that is east of Finland, whatever that peninsula is. That, that what is that, Karelia? That no. Little, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Kar- or isn't that where Han Solo's from? Yeah. Han, Sol- <laughs> Han Solo is from that little tumor that juts out east of, of Finland, <laughs> right? You know, I always had this problem. Did I mention that I walked across Europe? I always had this problem that I started. I was afraid this might come up. A man biking to Greece made me think this. there's an 80% chance. I started in London, but I had to take the ferry to Holland. Do you count it? I mean, I didn't walk around in circles on the ferry. So I always say I walked from Amsterdam to Istanbul because I don't want to say I walked from London to the coast and then to Hoek van Holland and then up to You need Amsterdam. to have somebody from the Guinness Book of World Records with a little stopwatch around his neck, like a gym coach, watching you walk around the ferry and verifying that, that, I walked that, you, that many kilometers. That, that you were continuing to walk. You don't have to walk the number of kilometers that matches the width of the channel. You just have to be walking the entire time that the boat is en route, I think. But I mean, if he started in Finland, he would then take a ferry to Estonia. Do we count it? Do we count the ferry ride? The, the finish is there are way, not that far. There are ways to get from the Arctic Circle to Greece without taking a ferry. Yeah, and perhaps he did Russia. so. You have to go through Russia. So how much biking through Russia did Dennis do? That uh, would suck. I don't know. Um, he fought in World War II. Wait, I had a question. Is this about biking? From- he, no, he must have a middle name. If he's an old Etonian and his name is Dennis Hill, he's got to have a middle name that, that makes his name sound more like a British adventurer. You'd want a hyphen. Oh, he, in fact, he does. And it's the name that makes his name sound more like a British adventurer. He is no less than Dennis Cecil Hills. Ah, I'm so glad I asked. Did you Google? Were you cheating? No. No, you I, just I, knew. I assumed it was Dennis Hog Hill or something right. like that. You want the hyphen for sure. He didn't. He was doing without the hyphen. So maybe he's not as wealthy, uh, wealthy mm. as family as we are thinking. He was born in a Birmingham suburb. So he's not Etonian. Right. He did go to a, a, a public day school. It seems like a pretty nice one in, in Birmingham. But, you know. It's in, in Birmingham. Birmingham. Right. Oh, we're going to get letters. <laughs> he might as well be in Black Sabbath. Do you want to go back to yelling at Leeds <laughs> so we can get the Birminghamites off our back? Uh, he fought in the war. Um, he participated in Operation Keel Hall. Well, he didn't participate in Operation. He he. Uh, <laughs> Operation Keel Hall. Do you know what Operation Keel Hall was? No, that sounds pretty like a drag, though. I, I don't know if that was our name or the Soviet name, but that was the forced repatriation of all the what the d- displaced oh. Ukrainians and Russians from World War II into Eastern Europe, forcibly back into the borders of their beloved home fatherland, the Soviet Union. Oh, I see. Oh, interesting. That there are there were a lot of forced repatriations in Eastern Europe 
during that period. But this was forcing Ukrainians and Belarusians back. Oh, yeah. And this is on the part of the Allies. So it, uh, it was an Allied codename sure. for an Allied operation. The British and back Americans were trying go. to get those. Let's hey, hey all you Ukrainians in back. Italy and Germany. Pushing you back here. Uh, so that was his post-war responsibility, which led to his familiarity with Central Europe. Uh, he would he reached world headlines in the early seventies in 1963, jumping ahead a bit, he moved to Kampala, Uganda to teach school there and ended up writing a book shortly after Idi Amin's takeover in 1971. In that book, he made the mistake of disparaging Amin. Oh dear. Calling him a village tyrant and a black Nero. Oh, which sounds like a pretty good, like Melvin Van Peebles movie, right? Yeah, Black Nero. Jim Brown is <laughs> Black Nero. Is there a, that? I feel like I've seen that movie, Black Nero. <laughs> he. It could be like Hamilton, where they re they re envision like like uh, the Roman re-en- Empire, except like all in. Are in they re envisioning like um like uh, some. 1970s uh, masterpiece theater version of it, like I oh, Claudius, yeah. or are they re envisioning like Bob Guccione's Caligula? I think that's with the a, movie with, I'd a di- see. with a diverse cast. Finally, uh, as you can imagine, if you know anything about Idi Amin, you know he does not love white people calling him the village tyrant in, no. the, in the international press. He was the last, uh, he was the last great emperor in my, in my heart for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Omnibus is Yunnan always pro Idi Amin. We're pro Idi Amin, except at Entebbe. No, no, not at all. Uh, we're pro Israel and pro Idi Amin. Yeah, I think you can be both. Insofar we as, teach as the that's possible. So uh, Hills is dragged in front of a military tribunal, sentenced to death by firing squad. And in fact, uh, it looks like it's going to happen. This is what makes world headlines. Queen Elizabeth II has to intercede. I think. Oh yes, you know, she you, was pretty involved in Africa at that point. Yeah, it was. These were all recently, there. recently countries that had recently been given their independence from various British East African protectorates. So it's a tricky situation. It's not like uh, somebody like Idi Amin is full of love for his uh, former British overlord overlords, just like most of the Ugandans would not have been. Um, but Idi Amin sees an opportunity here. You know, he he sits in a tent and makes the Queen's diplomats come to him. Right. He makes sure the opening of the tent is so low that they literally have to crawl on their hands and knees to get to his uh, wow. to get to his presence and to have their audience. But it's also elevating his his stature on the international sure. stage. He's he's dealing with the Queen and he's got something she wants, no less than Dennis Cecil Hills. Uh, the mission is successful. Idi Amin sees an opportunity here to look benevolent and munificent and he uh, pardons dennis the day before he's scheduled to go before the firing squad this is the high watermark of dennis hills's appearance on the 20th century stage and maybe Edie, i mean given that he's not known for his like high watermarks <laughs> right what else what are our other Edie, i mean highlights he has maybe he forrest has, whitaker winning the oscar he has big highlights it's just that they're not like they're not his top moments it was not uh dennis's last exile he was kicked out of uganda of course and had to find teaching work elsewhere he later went to poland but went back to poland in the 80s uh where he he found that it was uh not any kind of worker's paradise and wrote freely about this you'll remember this from our solidarity entry right uh and was kicked out of poland huh he loved poland he had uh during the war he had had you know, lots of uh, relationship with that part of the world, new people from that part of the world. 
most famously, following World War II, he had been the British official who, in mopping things up after the war, had decided to officially, that Her Majesty's government would officially look the other way. His Majesty's government, this is still the late 40s, sorry. And I just misgendered uh, King George. Right. When did King George die? Okay, yeah, like sure. 51? Right, right, right. 50 or 51? His Majesty's government. And, His you know, Majesty's the Pol- government. Polish uh, government in exile uh, in the From UK. From London, right? Yeah, yeah, was, yeah, a, yeah. was a big part of the war. Um, he was the one who decided to look the other way when a group of displaced Polish Jews decided to get hold of a freighter in like La Spiezza, Italy or something and make for Palestine. Right. If that, this sounds this, familiar to you, Exodus. it is the basis for Leon Uris's book, Exodus. Movement um, of Ja people. In real, yeah. It, they weren't Ja people, but yeah. Yeah, that's but that's on the soundtrack of the Otto Preminger movie. They have Bob Marley <laughs> singing at the end. Paul Newman standing on the deck of the ship. And then it's a beautiful moment. I watched that movie not very long ago, and it is longer than it needs to be. <laughs> like many movies of its time. Back then, they were like, what can't TV do? You know right. what it can't do? A 210-minute movie. Yeah. You know what's cheap these days? Film. <laughs> In real life, it was not called the SS Exodus, but that's based on something that happened to the SS Fede, a real group of, I think, like 1,500 um, Polish Jews. And so Dennis Hills played a role in this? Dennis Hills was the bureaucrat who was like, this actually shouldn't happen according to the law, but let's see if we can make this happen because oh. of his sympathy for the Polish people. His sympathy of the for the Polish people extended to marrying a Polish woman. I feel like sympathy for the Polish people and sympathy for Polish Jews are... <laughs> Doesn't always overlap? I don't think that Venn diagram is necessarily a circle. It appears that Hills is a champion of the underdog. Okay. Uh, but he married a Polish woman, and perhaps this is the root of, of much of his fellow feeling, uh, no less than the daughter of Bolesław Lesmian, who I'm sure I don't have to tell you, John, is the great Polish symbolist expressionist poet of the 20th century. Bolesław uh, Le- Lesbian? The what would be on the second L of Bolesław. I don't think you have to say Wesmian, although it's pretty funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We could start saying Wesmian. Let's say it. <laughs> uh, I don't know his work because it is famously untranslatable. It, 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 it's too it, full of reference. It encapsulates everything that is great about the Polish language and people to such a degree of specificity that does not work in any other language. Many uh, great Poles, including Czesław Miłosz, have commented on the untranslatability of this genius. So we will never know. The great tragedy, John, of not being Poles. We may we may not never know. It's entirely pot. We're just in middle age. We could one of us. It's not too late to learn Polish. We could declare there's something could happen. Imagine this: you leave the house today, and between here and your house, between here and the Mariners game, something happens to you where you dedicate yourself to learning the Polish language. What could it be? I thought you were imagining a thing where a flower pot falls out of a window onto my head. <laughs> And I wake up in some kind of Oliver Sacks movie speaking Polish. Right. Through a mysterious, unprecedented case of Slavic aphasia. The first person to successfully translate this book. No, it, I think it has to be something where you, what would it be? You'd run into somebody, maybe you'd get into a fender bender, you'd get out. Something about your interaction would, like, your eyes would lock and it would change you forever. Somebody leaves me the equivalent of a chick tract, but it's a book of Boleslav Wesmian poetry. And something about the typeface, yeah. Something about the pagination and the line breaks. It seems catches unlikely. my eye. It does seem unlikely. We could start a second podcast where we dedicate ourselves to uh, to, tra- <laughs> to translating the work of Boleslav Lesmian into. 
Can you imagine the listenership of that show? Because it's so vast, you can't even imagine it. Well, because we would be translating it from an English-Polish dictionary word by word <laughs> and arguing about it. Like, I don't think that's what that word means. What even is the... Who cares? What is this mountain he keeps talking about? we we got to go back to the 12th century. Ken, today's show is sponsored by Shopify. Now, I know Shopify is more than a store. I know it connects you with customers. It helps you drive sales, and it helps you manage your day-to-day. But... But tell me, what is Shopify? Yeah, it's not just your online storefront. Like, this is all the resources that you need to run a small business. Stuff that, you know, would have been beyond the grasp of a small business. Like explaining to me what my product is? Well, hopefully you already know that. Helping me develop my service? Scaling your business, reaching customers online, because it, it integrates with social media apps. Oh, that's cool. Um, synchronizing online and in-person sales. It's all the behind-the-scenes stuff, that's too. That's actually important, online and in-person sales. Detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, uh, and it grows with you no matter what your business is. I mean, am I too small to use Shopify? No, it's for upstarts, startups, established businesses alike. These are the kind of tools that used to be only for the big boys, but now businesses of any size can enjoy with Shopify. Can I like integrate it with other apps, third-party stuff? Yes, all that is super easy. They let you accept all major payment methods. They integrate with thousands of third-party apps. So no matter what you're doing, on-demand printing, accounting, you want chatbots, like it's all there. So what do I do? If I want to start uh, turning the power of Shopify to benefit me and my products. If you want to join the over 2 million businesses powered by Shopify, whether first sale or full scale, go to shopify.com slash omnibus. That's all lowercase omnibus. For a free 14-day trial, then you'll get full access to the whole Shopify suite of features. So you're saying if I go to Shopify today and type in Shopify, S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash omnibus lowercase right now, I'll get a free 14-day trial? Yes. Start growing your business today with Shopify. Shopify.com slash lowercase omnibus. In 1944, in uh, Cairo, uh, during the war, uh, Hills is stationed in Cairo, uh, and he must be with his beautiful Polish bride, because that is where they give birth to their daughter, Jillian. Uh, Jillian's born in Cairo during the war. Uh, Unfortunately, the parents' marriage is tempestuous and does not last long, and soon Jillian's Polish mom has separated her from Dennis, who, in a fit of depression, immediately goes to Uganda and starts insulting Idi Amin. For a minute there, I thought this was the plot of The English Patient. I was going to say, (laughs) how many movies are based on this guy's life? (laughs) Yeah, we never see. Do they have a kid? Is uh... No, wait. No, she dies dies. in a cave. She dies in a cave, so it doesn't matter if she's pregnant. Spoiler alert. So the Polish mom takes Jillian to the south of France. She grows up in Nice, attending a French girls' school speaks fluent French, and by the time she's 14, has the good luck of being a blonde British girl who also speaks French, living in affluent Nice, and looks like a young Bridget Bardot. Boy, this does sound nice. Wouldn't that... Imagine... What a good life, right? Imagine if your soul had had been like imported into that situation instead of the one you got. Well, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like it's 
uh, cake and roses. That's not an expression. To, yeah, cake and roses. To be a 14-year-old who looks like Bridget Bardot in 1959. Because in 1959, men are creepy then as now. Perhaps mm. even creepier towards 14-year-olds. This mm. is a boom time for this, right? Mm. Lolita has uh, been published, I believe, in the mid-50s. Elia Kazan's Baby Doll. There, were le- there was less of a public shaming movement for men who were like, let's just talk turkey. I'm really into 14-year-olds. And the age of consent in France now is 15. I just want everyone to know John did not know that offhand. <laughs> I he just, had, he's not one of those guys. He I've was, got a little list in my he wallet. He was Googling as we were talking. Yeah. As you know, I walked through Europe, and here's the mm. list I said to myself as I walked. 14, 15, 15, 16, 14, 15, 17, 15. I stayed a virgin the entire time I walked across Europe, but yes, I did just was the, Google was this it. A, was this a point of dedication to... Yeah, to focus all your your energy and and yeah. fluids on your on your travel. I was wearing a hair shirt the entire time. There's and nobody wants to make out with somebody that's in a hair shirt. How gross! No, they admire my hair shirt, Murdoch, but I do not allow them my essence. <laughs> but so you know, if the age of consent is fifteen now, I know. Imagine what it was in 1959. You sound a little bit like you're defending some of the creeps I'm about to get into here, and I want I want you to have a chance now to say that you are not. Oh, no. Well, spiritually not. I'm just saying the letter of the law probably was something around the age of 12, right? Isn't that the, the old standard? But as we look back, it's not certainly not admirable that Roger Vadim, the, the film director of And God Created Woman, who knew his, knew his Bardot. I know him well saw a photo, somehow saw a photo of, of this uh, young, winsome British blonde girl and said, I, my wi- new muse. I will have her in my new film. So now this is a good question. If you already have a Bardot, do you go looking for another Bardot? It or does, do you look for a, like a, a Lola Brigida? Yeah. yeah. It does tend to validate everything we think about a creepy guy like Roger Vadim that he might be like, I'm into Bridget Bardot, but you know what? She's pushing 27. <laughs> what? What else can the south of France provide me? Right. Um, he is preparing a movie of Les Liaisons Dangereuses. Uh, uh, the That's hard to translate into English. There's really no, there's no way to, no. to convey a, a liaison this dangerous. No. The way they would have in the French court of that time. We, we don't get it. Impossible. Do you know the, the play or, and or the movie? There's two creepy, uh, kind of horny, middle-aged courtiers. I don't Noble, know. Nobleman? I don't know. That's the kind of movie and play that I just, I elide. You weren't the right age to go to a lot of those movies in the late 80s, right? No, I felt like at that point. But there, you saw The English Patient, apparently. Yeah. There, <laughs> and corrected uh, me on the ending. It was weird. There was a, you know, I, I was dating somebody who took me to a certain kind of movie, but the that sort of weird college art house era of... Uh, we're gonna we're gonna remake European films, right? But they're still gonna be arty, just enough. There were art house movie theaters at that. We'll time, just put but, Meryl Streep in it. Yeah, she'll do an accent, and then we win Oscars. I didn't. Go and that to kind those. of movie could make a hundred million dollars in nineteen eighty seven. I was too on drugs still. Yeah, I don't know what dangerous liaisons would be like on drugs. Well, hmm. maybe you, you want maybe maybe you want to be on X or something. Did it have Sharon Stone? No, it's a little early for that. It's Glenn Close and John Malkovich, the earliest the Milos oh, or Milos Forman one. Right. No, wait, it's, he's Czech. We say Milos. It's the uh, it's the John Malkovich era of, of of foreign films. Wait, is that Milos Forman? Am I going to get somebody yelling at me? Is Milos. It like, is it Louis Mal? Is it Milos? Oh, Milos Forman may be competing one Valmont 
with Colin Firth as Malkovich, Annette Benning as Glenn Close. Same plot, same film, yeah, just different and it was name. the kind of thing where they came out like a year apart, and they were both, I think, adapting. Maybe one's more historical, and one's, one's the novel, and one's the Christopher Hampton play. The Malkovich one, this is bothering me that I can't think of it, is directed by, everyone's yelling at me. Everyone's, Malkovich, Malkovich. Everyone's listening and yelling at me. Malkovich. Oh, it's Stephen Frears. That makes a lot more sense. It's an English director. Um, and he then went and made The Grifters with Annette Benny. He must have liked Velmont better than his own movie. Anyway, uh, so it's about, if you the play and the novel are both kind of about the same thing. Two kind of bored, manipulative, evil, horny uh, weirdos at court. Who try to de- I feel attacked. Who try to de- <laughs> who try to debauch a, a, a virginal young fresh face? It's Uma Thurman in the in the Stephen Frears movie, but Vadim thinks, "Look at this beautiful fourteen year old. She will be my untouched French beauty in my new film." But the tabloids get a hold of it, oh. and they're like, "Even hey, they're like Roger Vadim. Even in nineteen fifty nine, this is not cool. She's fourteen. Right? You can't put her in your sexy sexy movie." There was a lot of that happening, though. Which the, the people putting young people in sexy, sexy movies. Yes, yeah. I'm telling you, it was, yes, a, it, was yes. a, it was a a golden age for it, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, and so he was forced to recast the part, but he liked Jillian's look so much that he puts her in the movie in a small role. And on the strength of this, she gets she starts to get cast in movies. In 1959, she appears in a cheap British teen exploitation movie. One of these. The teens are out of control, but isn't it? Wouldn't it be naughty if we could go to Soho and see what they're up to? What? Oh, look! There's a. I think it was called Striptease Girl. Oh dear! And the British Board of Film Censors said, and they made them cut out the the uh, put a few more scarves in the striptease scenes, and now it's called Beat Girl. Oh yeah, but it's this is pre. Oh no, I guess. That would be in the Beats. It would be in the Beat era, yeah. We're not quite to swinging London, but I I think I'd like to draw the straight line that this is kind of the beginning of that scene of London as the center of what it would become in the mid-60s, youth counterculture. It hasn't quite turned into what it would become, which is kind of the consumerist version of... It's the opposite of like Summer of Love San Francisco stuff because this one was successfully co-opted by capitalism. Right. And they wanted to make sure everybody had the right fashions and miniskirts and Those handbags. White patent and, leather knee-high and boots haircuts. aren't free. And as a result, that holds up a lot better than the, than the San Francisco fashions of, of two or three right. years later. <laughs> right. Cool looking, yeah. Because <laughs> the ones in London were actually, you know, bathing. Uh, we just watched uh, National Velvet. The other day. The old Elizabeth Taylor one? Eliz- and she's like 13 in that movie. And the implicate there's Wait, the, really? Yeah. And I was watching her relationship with Mickey Rooney, who's living in the barn. And he's not he's not old either, but he's 20, probably, or 19 in the movie. And they really keep it clean. It's all about the horse. But of course, there's like she's running out to the barn to talk to him. Mickey I mean, Rooney's in the too night. old, right? Yeah, he's he's, he's not supposed to be her age in that. He was boyish in the forties. Yeah, he, he but he's not supposed to be her age. But he is kind of a rough and tumble, you know, young vagabond. Does a, she have her violet eyes on him? It's I watched it so carefully for that implication. Weird, but okay. You know, weird, I'm, but go on because I'm watching it with my with my eleven year old, and because so. you know Elizabeth Taylor is going to become the biggest sex symbol in the world, which uh, an audience at the time would not have known. Right, and 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 watching her performance, which is which is extraordinary. Um, but you know, I'm watching a lot of films like that, like uh, Parent Trap with um, 
Haley Mills? No, the, the we, Joanne Hills. We watched the Haley Mills one, but then we watched the Lindsay Lohan, Lindsay Lohan one, and trying to look at you know a. Uh, uh, Lindsay Lohan and predict her future in that film was would be ha- hard to do. It is sad now to watch an Amanda Bynes movie or something. You know, something comes on and you know what happens to the, you know what what the system did to that sweet young thing. You know? It's very hard to watch National Velvet and picture Richard Burton playing any role in the in the later <laughs> story. But what's your favorite movie where Mickey Rooney seems to live in a barn? Is it National Velvet or is it Black Stallion? <laughs> You know, it's basically the same character. He, it is. He stays in the barn. He for spent all those the forties putting on musicals in barns with Judy Garland. He just, that right. guy just likes a barn. He does like a barn. Mickey Rooney. That's the main thing about him. Uh, so this is the beginning of of, uh, of London kind of becoming the center of of the youth scene. The Italians would argue, but yes, I agree. I mean, yeah, I, I guess. Especially in the late fifties, Rome has a claim, but maybe London succeeds it. The Dolce yeah. Vita is replaced by. By swinging Carnaby Street and yeah. Soho and yeah, bur- 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 by nineteen sixty six for sure. Yes, and this is fifty nine, but it's it's exactly you know the, that scene is already there in Soho, and that's very much the the movie's exactly what you expect. Some middle class girl who's mad that her dad, I think, oh, it's David Farrer from those Michael Powell movies. He has remarried, and she's rebellious, and she's going out to these seedy night spots at night. Um, teen idol Adam Faith has a part. A young Oliver Reed. Plays a young tough, and maybe most memorably, it's the first soundtrack for John Barry, who wrote uh, all those James Bond soundtracks and right. kind of became the big orchestral British sound of the of the sixties. I would um, love to see a young Oliver Reed play yeah. a tough. Do you think he ever looked? I'm sure he always young? looked at forty five. You have to imagine he's living pretty hard even back then. This movie is now out on Blu-ray. It's it's fondly remembered. Did you see that Edgar Wright movie last year, Last Night in Soho? About the, uh, no, it's kind of a thriller, slight, you know, semi supernatural thriller set set against that scene. Um, it's, so, it's it's Beat Girl is very much foundational for that as well. There's so many movies now. I don't know if you're aware of this. Movies and TV, too much content. There's a lot of it. Everybody was so sad when HBO Max was like, you know what, we're not making Doom Patrol anymore. Now it's all Shark Week and 90 Day Fiance. And I said, thank you. Finally. <laughs> Please stop making things that seem like they might be okay. There's so many things. So I have things. to watch 10 hours of them. Yeah, and the other day I, I I had to watch a Ryan Reynolds movie where it was just, it was like a James Bond movie where you just quadrupled everything. And, and was, was it The Adam Project? I don't know what it was. Was it Ryan Reynolds? Maybe it was the other one. Oh, no, it's the new one, with, The Gray Man. The Gray Man. With, I don't know who that is. Yeah, the other one. The guy that... Who cares? Uh, the, <laughs> that's right. And, uh, and yeah, I watched it, and I, you know, I had that experience three or, three or four times in the movie where I was like, why am I watching this? Like, where did I go wrong in life that I'm here now? <laughs> they, uh, the problem was they made it so you don't have to go to a place. If you have to go to a place, you're going to put some thought into what you're going to be looking at for two hours. It's true. If there's a screen at home that just feeds you things, you're going to be like, well, what's the first thing it's going to feed me? Bring it on. I'm already on my couch. Go ahead. Uh, one of the reasons why Beat Girl is fondly remembered is not just because uh, it had toplessness, although we'll get into that in a second. It's because Jillian Hills is very good. She plays a, a realistic teenager, even though it's kind of a low-budget, sleazy thing. Maybe the first time any British teenager had ever seen anybody like them on film. Uh, Can you imagine Paul McCartney, George Harrison, uh, they must have John seen Lennon, and Pete Best going to see this movie? Probably together, right? (laughs) 
Speaking of those four lovable lads, this was the time when American rock and roll was hitting Europe. Mm -hmm. And when we think about that story, I think the 20th century has conditioned at least people our age to think of George Harrison, you know, trying to find Carl Perkins vinyl in his local record shop and they're all, you know, they never get them or they have to save them for him or John Lennon hearing Chuck Berry or Paul McCartney hearing Little Richard and just their mind opening from their grubby little small northern world and and seeing something bigger and cooler. You're going to get letters from the from the Liverpudlians. You've already angered Birmingham and Leeds, <laughs> and I think I'm going to I'm ready to take on the North. How do you feel about the Manchester scene of the 1980s? <laughs> uh, but the story's bigger than that. The story's bigger than whatever record store in Liverpool those guys used to go to. Uh, all over Europe, people were starting to hear these records, and they were hearing Little Richard and Elvis and Chuck Berry, and their eyes were opened as well. And this led to what became known as yeah yeah music. Have hmm. you ever seen the term yeah yeah with with French accents over the e's? I don't know if I have. It's a pretty good Bon Me store in Linwood, but yeah, it's yeah. also a, a Western European musical scene of the early sixties. Huh. Um, you'd think the name would come filtered through, through Liverpool, right? Through She Loves You. Right. But in fact, there seems to be some evidence that there were songs in the Yeah Yeah vernacular that used, you know, uh, a singer like Francoise Hardy was singing Yeah 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 as lyrics uh, in 1962. A full- Almost a prison call in Ensign Cusel. Right. Because, you know, Yeah is, yeah is yeah. coming out of jazz beat yeah. slang. Yeah, man. I'm bourgeois from a bourgeois. So I'm not saying that... Uh, you know, She Loves You is ripping off Francoise Hardy or Sylvie Vartan or whoever, but there seem to be yet repeated yeah, yeah, yeahs in this kind of music before, the before the Beatles. Yeah, yeah, yeahs in the air. Wait a minute. Were, were there any 50s American rock and roll songs that used yeah, yeah? Hmm. I, I, that never occurred to me. I don't know. I think maybe no, just because of the the uh, Ed Sullivan era reaction when the Beatles started saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember? I mean, there's a lot of sneering in the press at the time, right. like songs, you know, even Elvis has words. These lads <laughs> just say, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not a thing. That doesn't mean anything. Uh, she I'm, loves you. Yeah. But that's a very Britishism, right? She loves yeah, you. She yeah. Loves you, yeah. Uh, but not to say it three times. That would be weird. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that would be a, a British yeah. person with um, That's kind of with, with a stutter or Tourette's or something. <laughs> um, so around this time, all these, uh, it's mostly girl pop singers in, starting in France, but also Spain, Portugal, Italy. It spreads through Europe and even Japan imitates it. Start recording. Yeah, yeah, music is kind of a very danceable kind of bubblegum pop it's it's campy, and I think it knows it a little bit. You know, it, it sounds very fun and carefree. You know, it's it's sexually free because it's a it's a it's a it's a bubbly young girl singing often in these French versions, often these terrible double entendres written by Serge Gainsbourg or someone. Um, I can kind of picture the scene. You can if you if you listen to it, it sounds it's very orchestral. There's there's brass, you know, so there's the kind of the John Barry stuff. And then and the Austin Powers kind of flutes, do, 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 you know, that yeah, kind of yeah, thing. Right. But it's also a little bit Latin. There's bongos and marimbas, and it sounds cha-cha-y or, or bossa nova-y. And, and they're all sitting at the front of a boat on the Seine, smoking cigarettes and drinking wine from the bottle. Songs are literally about things like girls trying cigarettes, um, you know, girls ooing at boys. 
there's there's spoken words, there's sound effects. It knows it's goofy and campy. And before it got big, the very first, I, I think the very first woman to kind of go big in this vernacular, the first European woman pop star of any kind, when you think about it, was Jillian Hills. What? Uh, she was still living in Nice. Uh, she spoke fluent France. She spoke mm. fluent France. I do too. She spoke fluent French. I don't speak French, but I do speak fluent France. What would that consist of? Can you say something in France for me? No, I just mean, I know and love the French people. <laughs> uh, bonjour. You know, it's like the American that can say 15 words in French. That's me. I get it. Ah, bonjour. So De, Comment Ga- ça va? De Gaulle speaks French, but Marie Chevalier speaks France. There you go. I understand now. Uh, she gets a record deal with a uh, a French outfit called Barclay Records and goes into the studio in 1960. There's no more French word than Barclay. Yeah, what is up with that? It's, you know, my Dutch music label was called Munich Records. <laughs> and <laughs> What was your German music record? Uh, yeah, my German label was... Uh, it, it, it didn't, Moscow Records. It didn't have a, uh, it didn't have a place name uh, like that, but my Spanish record label was called Houston Party. <laughs> Was that a reference to Whitney Houston? I know. Ain't no party like a Houston party. I don't think so. I think it was a reference to to Texas, although maybe, I don't know, is there a Spanish place called Houston? Maybe it's Barclay, and I'm saying it wrong. Ah, Barclay. Okay. Uh Over the next five years, she will go on to record over a dozen EPs, uh, and she's got a great voice, and the music's irresistible. It's it's kind of, a, they're taking American, uh, English language pop songs and rhythms and just putting French lyrics on them which actually doesn't match the rhythms of french syllabification oh and that's actually what leads to the the old chanson movement coming back and that's why you get these nouvelles chansons of the 60s because you know serious artists like jacques brel are like these american rhythms do not work with our uh, belgo french language you know right and the language uh, and so they get the they get a little bit of roma influence back in there well, it's just how the syllables go. You know, it's just the, you know, the American iams of English don't, maybe they don't always match how a French person would talk. Have you ever listened to European rap in any, <laughs> in any great measure? Because European rap is definitely something else. It does not, it doesn't translate. Whereas Korean rap, I feel like the Korean language works great in rap music. I've noticed that in Southern European languages, you know, things often end with feminine rhymes because in Spanish and Italian, things end with unstressed syllables. You know, we go da 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 whereas their words all end ito, ino, bada, bada, bada. Right. It's easier to rhyme, but you don't have those hard, you don't have those explosive finals on each line, you know, because you're not going but up but up but up You're going da 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 And that, that's what makes German rap so weird because it all ends in ich. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, her records sell well. She sounds really great on them. Um, she does not become the first yet. She, you know, even though she's the first girl pop star in, I mean, is there an American, you know, is there an American chart topper at this time who's a woman and is not like an old-timey Peggy Lee or Patty Page? I guess I guess little Brenda Lee, you know. Brenda Lee, right. That might be about it. But then it's then the soul singers of the 60s is what sweeps right, in. Right. But at this time in 1960, she's like the first girl pop superstar in Europe. And she doesn't ever get that big because as soon as Yeah music catches on, you know, Francoise Hardy and Sylvie Vartan kind of take over her crown. Um 
But before that happens, she actually records some songs we still know today. Uh, she records a song called Toot 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 Toot. A lot of these songs have hooks that are just words that sound fun to say. They're almost like novelty songs. Um, that song was used memorably in The Queen's Gambit. And that, I think, only happened because Hills' biggest hit, a song called Zooby Zoo, was immortalized by Mad Men. Did you watch enough Mad Men to remember Zooby Zoo? No. I got to the end of the first season of Mad Men, and I had I'd had a fine time watching it, but it did not compel me to watch the second season. Yeah, yeah, music has become a way to convey the early 60s and these period dramas. What, they stopped using Esquivel? <laughs> Uh, in the, I think it's the season four or five premiere spoilers, our hero, Don Draper, well, our anti-hero Don Draper has remarried like a young, vibrant French Canadian woman who proceeds to, uh, celebrate at a party by, at a birthday party for him by singing this, this, this irresistible French pop song. And he, Don just squirms in his seat. This is so antithetical to his nature that this, this woman is, um, is kind of, uh, putting out like this at his party if i said to you my two choices were to re-watch game of thrones or to watch mad men, mad men. All the way. Really? it's not even close oh wow okay all right maybe i should the thing about all these this is not have nothing to do with jillian hills but all these streaming shows now Weird. like they're so finely engineered people just say what they want all the time you know every scene will be like here's me and here's what i'm trying to do and the other person will say to them but you can't do that because I want this. And the person will be like, no, no, let me tell you who I am. I'm a person who does X. Like there's no subtext at all. Whereas Mad Men like refused to do that. Huh? Like the people were self were deluded and self-deceiving and they didn't always know what they wanted. And they certainly didn't tell their spouses or coworkers. Right. So there's a lot, it's, it's just a lot subtler a show. I, I feel like that's true worldwide. I was talking to somebody the other day where I was like, my dad didn't once process his feelings in his entire life. Right. And, and, uh, and when he died, I kind of admired him for it. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, all right. Mad Men's. I think what happened was there was a scene where he, Don Draper was in Korea. There's a flashback. A flashback. This. And he looked 45 and they tried to make him look young and they, uh, and they failed. And I was just like, I'm out. We need better. We need more of that wrinkle smoothing stuff they do now. Yeah, movies. or the CGI where they make everybody where they make yeah. uh, Obi Wan Kenobi look old or young or both. <laughs> I'm feeling really pleased with myself today, John, because I remembered to cancel a TV channel during the seven day free trial period. Wow, how did you even manage to do it? You you watched TV for a couple of days and you were like, this is not for me? I watched the one movie I wanted to see on this channel and then I had to set a little notify update on my phone to remind me to cancel the damn thing before it became $5.99 a month. I've been paying for an app for a year and I have never used it once. And every week I say, oh, I got to cancel that thing. And I still haven't done it. That's why they want you to sign up for those things. Yeah. Because they think you'll forget to unsubscribe. And even though you don't use the surface, they'll just keep siphoning money off you for months to come. Yeah, they hope it they hope it never goes away, right? You forget about it. We want to recommend to you Truebill. If you were to download Truebill, it would manage all your subscriptions for you. It'll figure out what stuff you're not using but you're still paying for, which ones you forgot about. The average Truebill user saves about $720 a year. You know, not everybody is as circumspect as you and I are about subscribing to things, right? People, I think, 
in the contemporary economy recognize that subscriptions are how you get the things that you want, but they're, they also are susceptible to a lot of things that they don't want to pay for anymore. And, and companies specifically make it hard to cancel, you know, so you've got right. to know where on the site to do it. Here's all the hoops you have to jump through. Truebill will do that automatically for you. That's why I still get Time Magazine. Peace of mind that they have over 2 million users and have collectively saved them over $100 million. So how do I use Truebill? It's easy, John. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today by going to Truebill.com slash Omnibus. So you're saying if I go to Truebill.com slash Omnibus, it could save me thousands a year? That's right. Truebill.com slash Omnibus. So that's her first career. She, Without Jillian Hills, we would not have, uh, what's her name? Jessica Paré singing Zooby Zoo. Wait, she, her first career Man. was the pop music or was the film? Well... So she makes one film, but uh, you know she kind of becomes a star first in pop music. Her, we do remember her movie work today because after her French, after you know she kind of gets supplanted by the Yeah Yeah Girl singers, she goes back to the UK, is unable to get an English language recording career going because they've already got Priscilla Black and Dusty Springfield. I guess they're not they're not hiring, and she's the ripe old age of. 19 now <laughs> let's see yeah by this point it's the early 60s she's in her she's in her mid-20s so it's, oh. it's pretty much over oh boy no she uh she is still supermodel beautiful she's still a bridget bardot type and so she goes into the film industry and you know she winds up making a few kind of lurid 1970s movies that are still cult films today she makes a gothic hammer films movie called uh demons of the mind about a dad who locks his kids in the house imprisons the kids in the house and it's incestuous mm. which will come up later there's also some satanic stuff i think marianne faithful dropped out of that mm-hmm. julian hill stepped in and then later like a spanish italian kind of one of these bloody giallo movies of the early 70s called the killer with white gloves so she didn't have a Sorry, mainstream kill, the killer wore gloves she did and she didn't like those are her big starring roles that like cult people know her for but before that, she appeared in two of the most memorable scenes of two of the most memorable movies of 1966 and 1971, respectively. Have you seen Blow Up or A Clockwork Orange? I have seen A Clockwork Orange. I don't know if I've seen Blow Up. Blow Up is the Antonioni movie without which we don't have the conversation or blowout. It's oh. about a photographer who accidentally takes a picture of a crime and then... Oh, it kind of it up starts and... zooming in and trying to figure out exactly what happened, and it kind of drives him a little bit mad. I don't think I've seen it. Being, it sounds Hitchcockian. Being as it's an Antonioni movie, the Hitchcockianness is is a little bit tempered by his sense of, you know, 20th century alienation and not much happening. But it does have a legitimate suspense plot. But in the mid-60s, these kind of European films really took off in America because whether they were the dour skeptical Lutheranism of Ingmar Bergman or the the bleak Antonioni at you know Italy, they all had one thing in common. Sex. Yeah. You know, European movies could have pr- pretty actresses in various states of undress. So these movies which were intended as, you know, as thinking man's uh a thinking person's night out to to argue with your friends over cigarettes and coffee with in the US they Played, played in Times Square. Played major cities, and it would just be creepy guys in trench coats going to Bergman and Antonioni movies. Uh, I mean, to some degree. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. You know, the creepy people had actual porn they could go to. But this was a thing where, oh, hey, there's a Swedish movie showing in town, honey. Well, 
wouldn't, wouldn't that be something to try? Uh, you know, a lot of creepy madmen, Roger Sterling types. They wouldn't have had mainstream porn until maybe 71. Yeah, I mean, how would you watch a stag film if you were uh, at a stag party? You'd have to go to a, you'd have to go to some Elks Club. Yeah, or something. the American Legion basement. <laughs> yeah, so the, yeah, so this predates theaters in in Midtown Manhattan being able to show frank sexuality. The that, first, the first one would have, yeah. But if it was an art film on a university campus, or right, yeah, and American distributors knew it, and they would make these new lurid posters for. So you'd go see a puzzling Bergman art film like The Silence about the silence of God, but there'd be, you know, two minutes of heavy breathing. And the, the poster would have a ripped bodice and a, yeah. Exactly. Some, some, uh, some European cutie on it. Um, blow up was no different, even though it's a little bit plotless and meandering. It, it does have a lot of David Hemmings running around sixties, Carnaby street, London, the Yardbirds appear and smash mm. some guitars. Mm. Um, it's a great movie. But for a lot of people, the most memorable scene was a menage a trois where two models show up at the photographer's studio and it it turns into a, what was, should we say, a frolic? A kiss fest. They cavort uh-huh. a bit. There's I don't even know if there's kissing. There's It's a little bit creepy. I rewatched it and David Hemmings as the photographer actually begins the scene by assaulting one of the women. He just starts strangling Jillian Hills. He comes in, she's changing outfits. He comes in when she's in a state of disabilé. And just tries to basically strangle her, th- force hmm. himself on her. Hmm. But then the other girl comes in, and it all turns fun. So it's got it's still got some some of the skeeviness of the time. Yeah, I see. The other girl is played by Jane Birkin, who, speaking of, was the muse of of yeah yeah songwriter Serge Gainsbourg, right. and famously, and went on to become, you know, the the maker of the world's most expensive Hermes handbags. You know, these namesake Jane Birkin bags. Um, she was also, a, she, so she also had a yeah, yeah career. She, she appears and even sings a bit on, on Gainsbourg's Histoire de Melanie Nelson. So it's Jean Birkin and Jillian Hills, these two, um, kind of pan European music stars of the sixties in all, this. All those photographs of Jane Birkin and Serge Gainsbourg. It, I, I feel <laughs> almost like she's at least as big a star, if not a bigger star than he is because uh, because his, those photographs, because he's um, the weirdest looking guy. Because he's in, so in repulsive, Europe. and those photographs with her make him seem really beautiful. It's funny to see Charlotte Gainsbourg today, their daughter, because you know she's a great actress in her own right. But she has like you know she has Jane Birkin's ethereal, uh, you know, sixties Mary Quant kind of beauty, and she all has Gainsbourg's very distinctive features, and it's, it makes her very striking. Because she's a combination of the ugliest man and the most beautiful woman in Europe. It's, it's like a science experiment to see what would happen. Um, this film is famous because it's the first British film, and I think the first film successful internationally, to have pubic hair. <gasps> which, I'm shocked even now. Which we have covered uh, in the Merkins entry. Um, yeah, so Jillian Hills and Jane Merkin. uncovered. Oh, I see what you did there. Oh, man. Two can play at your game. Woo! So Jane Birkin and Jillian Hills make history uh, there. The second film, you said you've seen A Clockwork Orange. Yeah, more than once. I've seen it a few times. Um, I don't dislike the movie, but it's like like a lot of Kubrick movies, it's kind of a tough sit in, yeah. in a lot of ways. Plotless and meandering, he, he kind puts, of like he, my life. He puts you through some things. He does. I yeah. mean, the, it still seems, the violence is still very shocking today. Yes. Even though it's not the kind, you know, at the time it was like, 
what's the next rating? How can this be released? Blah, blah, blah. It's the attitudes that are tough to take. Sure. Uh, for us middle-aged dads alex how dare you you really shouldn't be beating up (laughs) nice old people in their homes or under a bridge while singing in the rain i will i will stand that but there is one scene in that movie in which jillian hills appears it's the menage a trois scene she had a specialty Hmm. uh at one point malcolm mcdowell propositions two girls and takes them home and then there's a a hilariously sped up Oh, right. Where uh, they run around. And it's like a 45 second thing. All to the, the different positions. They're playing William Tell Overture in kind of a goofy synthy arrangement under it um, while they, again, frolic and cavort, her right. specialty. Should have been Flight of the Bumblebees, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Or Saber Dance. Mm-hmm. Um, Benny Hill theme. <laughs> yeah. It, it, you really think of the Benny Hill theme because it's, I guess they shot it in one 28 minute um, regular speed thing and then just. On the screen, it plays at the speed of about one or two frames. Wait, how would that be? Yeah, t- taking one or two frames a second. I see. So for every second of action, you know. Uh, Over 28 minutes, they shorten it to 45 seconds? Yeah, it should be 24 frames a second, but it's at, you know. I see. 12 times the speed it should be, or 20 times the speed it should be. Or I'll something. have to rewatch it, if um, my constitution can handle it. Well, you really, so she appears in these two super famous threesome scenes of the sixties that are rewatched today. So, and I had not realized that this Zuby Zoo woman was also, you know, one of the most iconic actresses of the sixties, almost without saying a single word. She has dialogue in, um, in blow up. It's, it's Birkin who hardly speaks and she's very good. She's a talented actress, I think. But the third career, this is what was most interested my brother, uh, Happened after her film work dried up because, again, she's now in her early 30s. and That's the end. And w- what would be the point of, of that? Right. So uh, there's not a lot for her to do in film or music. She moves to New York and quietly changes careers. Now, if you, uh, if you have not a lot to add to film or music, New York is where you belong. <laughs> and the publishing industry. In 1979, uh, a 55-year-old woman named Virginia Andrews spends two weeks writing a lurid Gothic manuscript that uh, just kind of in, in a single draft, you know, single, single flight of consciousness. On a roll of toilet paper. Jack Kerouac, uh, pencil never leaves the paper kind of a thing, and sends it off to Pocket Books, which is so taken by this page turner that they pay her $7,500 for it. Uh, she's had a hard life. She um, fell down a stairwell as a kid. And as a result had, you know, the surgeries to try to correct that just did a number on her back and all the joints of her body. So she was in a, in cr- using crutches or in a wheelchair for much of her life due to the, the painful arthritis. At one point she's in a hospital and she hears a doctor tell a story about uh, a case he had come across where uh, a woman had, had locked her children up in a, a basement or an attic or something just for years mm-hmm. before authorities found out about it. In, a, in an echo of this Hammer Films movie that Julian had made, I guess. And it stuck with her. She called her book Flowers in the Attic. Are you familiar with the V.C. Andrews Flowers in the Attic phenomenon of the, uh, of the 1980s? This is somewhat separate from Flowers for Algernon, right? Which I do know pretty well. But Flowers in the Attic, Somewhat in sure. the sense that they have nothing in common except for oh, flowers. Okay. That's about the mouse that becomes smart. Yeah, there's no smart mouse in Flowers in the Attic? No, there's no smart mouse, although there, okay. there, there is rat poison. 
Okay. So you're you're totally unaware of flowers in the attic and what it represents to Gen X girls in particular. I do think I am, unless you say something next where I go, oh, yes. So these books just sold millions of copies. The 105 million copies have been sold so far. They were on the New York Times bestseller list within weeks of their release as adult fiction. Um, hmm. Because these are extremely mature themes. The uh, the book is narrated by a Kathy Dollenganger, and it's the story of her family, uh, a wealthy Virginia family, perhaps not unlike Virginia Andrews's. Her father dies in a car accident. There's some shenanigans where her mother will not inherit her own family's wealthy estate if she if it comes out that she has kids. So Kathy and her three siblings end up locked in an attic bedroom of her grandmother's fancy old money southern hall you know her her foxworth house or whatever it's called and the sadistic grandmother and it turns out their unfeeling mother just really put these kids through the ringer as they try, as she tries to get her inheritance. Why is this a thing that Gen X girls are, were really into at the time? That is the crucial question, because this was not written as a children's book. YA fiction did not exist back then. Right. So the idea that... Except for flowers. The for idea Albert that 12-year-old girls at summer camp would be passing around... These uh, books torture that, porn? Books that had, that had uh, you know, sexy parts. Because What are the sexy parts? Most famous, well, the book begins with Kathy kind of weirdly sexualizing both of her parents. It's from the, it's not really that believable from the viewpoint of a young girl. Uh, Is this of like a Fifty Shades of Grey thing? Even weirder, because it comes out that the kids are products of incest. The mom has actually married her own half-uncle. Huh. If, I don't even know what a half-uncle is, but apparently, apparently if you marry it, you, you, you can have flowers in the attic, kids. And then she is locked up there with her older brother so long that they end up having uh, an incestuous relationship. And it's not always my, when I asked Mindy about this yesterday, she didn't remember, but in fact, it's sexual assault. Her, her brother rapes her. But Mindy remembers the novels as being significant. Yes. Significant because they are, are full of, of frank descriptions of sexuality, which was hard for curious 12 year old girls to get their hands on. In the 1980s. This is after uh, after you've read Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, and you're looking for something a little harder. There's almost no post-Judy Bloom stuff to read. And for a lot of girls, that be- for a lot of curious pubescent girls, that became Flowers in the Attic. And then forever, Judy Bloom's kind of one book that's a little more for adults and has uh, more adult themes. You know, not just periods, but actual kissing, actual backseats of cars and whatnot. Uh, and, you know, bad boyfriends and, and whatnot. And so even though the prose in this book is laughably bad in the, in some cases, I don't want to, I'm going to get letters now. Yeah. And Ew, it's amazing prose. And the, um, the plot is just this ridiculous kind of overheated, incestuous Southern Gothic stuff. St- trapped in an attic with your, with your brother and your half uncle. It's basically outsider art, even though it sold 105 million copies. It really is just like a real weird glimpse into this, into this woman's inner life, into, into her weird imagination. Um, it became a touchstone for, I think, millions of young girls of our generation. I feel like the title was innocuous enough that I'm sure it went in one ear and out the other a thousand times and it never took hold, but I have zero recollection. I'm going to, I'm going to text some, text your contemporaries, Gen X friends and say, do you remember this book? Did this, did this, did this? Is this why our relationship didn't work? 
It's been adapted a few times for movies and TV. I think once with Kiernan Shipka of Mad Men. Is this why you called me half-uncle all the time and I never could figure out why? <laughs> Please stop calling me half-uncle. Oh, the rat poison is because the grandma starts poisoning the kids with arsenic, starts giving the kids arsenic. It, it just goes off the rails. Well, wait, the grandma was not, she was, the, the mom was not going to inherit if she had kids, but the grandma knew she had kids. The grandma knows, but it's the, it's the dad who has the purse strings who is, has to be convinced and whose will has to be adjusted, et cetera, et cetera. How weird. Most parents, most of those conditional inheritance things would be that you had to have kids, right? Why would the... I think it's because he knows that the kids are the products of incest. I it's see. a, it's a, most of the wills that you and I are familiar with don't have the half uncle problem. What, right. what lawyers call the half uncle problem. Right, the incest clause. So these books are a sensation. You know, I've, I, I, I never understood the fascination. I, I only came up against them when they were, that when they appeared in libraries and classrooms and then were challenged. Like I remember oh. in my sixth grade class, somebody was reading those and actually went to the teacher in shock and said, you're not going to believe what happens in page 178 of this book. And the teacher had just, you know, inherited a bunch of books and put, had put it with the scholastic paperbacks, had put it with Caddy Woodlawn and was shocked to find out what was happening on page 178. So the first time I knew about the book, it was being pulled out of my classroom. Wow. Uh, and it gets frequently challenged to this day in libraries. But now there's a whole, you know, now there's a whole section of the bookstore devoted to, hey, you're 14 and you want to read about teens getting felt up. Some of them are ghosts, some of them are vampires. Here, here's your, here's your genre. Like the idea that that girls, uh, kids, but especially girls that age, should not be reading about sex is basically out the window at this point. If you make the uh, the character a ghost or a vampire does that take some of the sting away of of uh sex well it does in fact like that's kind of the the crucial i think element of those twilight books i don't i'm not familiar with them me either but the fact that he's a vampire means he really can't uh let himself go with his human uh inamorata oh he can't go all the way because he would he would you know tear her neck apart with his with his fangs or something. But they love each other. They do, but it has to be very chaste I because see. of the vampire element. Got so it. Got it, I think got that's it. the, and so, you know, uh, young readers see themselves in these books, not just it's their curiosity about sex, but it's also maybe the troubled relationship with the mom. It's the feeling of imprisonment. Yeah. Like I'm in an attic, like Kathy, you know, right. in a way sure. when my mean parents won't let me go to the the thing after the game. Sure. I get everything I've ever asked for, but, but when you talk to a lot of these, these readers today about their love for the books. And I've, I've looked at fan groups and online petitions. And so you forth. haven't actually talked to anyone, but you've looked at fan groups. <laughs> I talked to Mindy yesterday on the ferry uh-huh. coming back from Lopez. And she was talking about, and I was like, why, why did you like these books? And she was like, well, cause they're doing it. Like we didn't have there. We had no other books where people were doing it. Um, a lot of these people talk about the covers of the books, the covers of, of the pop pocketback books, paperbacks of flowers in the attic. And it's many sequels were, Beautiful and memorable. And and just to mention the sequels for a moment, these books sold so many copies that when um, Virginia Andrews died shortly after writing the fourth one, the family and pocketbooks just kept turning them out and didn't her family didn't the tell Andrews anybody. Family. Yeah, the Andrews family and the and the her publisher just kept turning out these books. They, they hired, buried her in the yard and 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 didn't didn't tell anybody she died. It was a different time. You would not know who your who your Favorite authors were if you were a kid, you right, know, right. like you couldn't, you couldn't go online and see what Eric Carl or Neil Gaiman were up to. Whereas now, you know, they all, you know, everybody like that would have a social media yeah, right, feed. Right. So they hired a guy named Andrew Niedermeyer, who to this day 
turns out somewhere between one to five of these a year. There are now 40 or 50 books in this series. You know, some some go back in time. It's the earlier saga of this. They're all family sagas that are tangentially related to the original Four Kids in the Attic. I thought Niedermeyer got fragged by his own troops. <laughs> no, Niedermeyer's making a great living. He's got wow. a boat in the Florida Keys, I can only assume. Wow. Because he's some high school teacher, ghostwriter guy who hit it rich. Right. Um, and I think kids didn't know. In fact, there was even a, a famous tax lawsuit uh, in which Andrews's heirs were sued by the IRS because they were continuing to use her name. And the IRS said, that's an asset worth seven figures, and oh. you need to pay taxes on the fact that you're essentially now V.C. Andrews. So oh. the, the IRS had to put a value on the name V.C. Andrews, and they decided, that's $1.2 million asset you have that you need to, that's taxable. Hmm. Good for them. Good for the IRS. Good for the IRS. Exactly. Go after these uh, hangers-on of, yeah. of a great outsider art talent. Scoff laws. But the covers of these original pocketbook printings, whether by Andrews or Niedermeyer, are great. They use a then-new idea called the step-back cover, which you and I have seen before. There's a, some kind of a cutout oh, in yeah. the first cover, die cut, yeah. and then it opens onto a second cover in which you see the little peekaboo image, but now in a fuller form in a different context. This is the first one that did that? It's not the first one. I was able to find... It's a, it's a genre convention in kind of cheap sci-fi and mystery back to the early 70s, I think. Um, and it was starting to bleed into the mainstream. Uh, Michael Crichton used it in The Terminal Man, or, you know, Michael Crichton's publishers used it in The Terminal Man. So there were a few cases like this. But this was the thing that blew the doors off it. Um, and Anne Pat, I think Anne Patty is the name of the acquiring editor at Pocket Books. She, when asked about these step-back covers, she said, cutouts had been done before, but nothing like that with, with so much shiny foil had really been done. And then we found an artist who really got VC's sensibilities to paint the inner cover. So what you see is these high contrast images of bright primary colors, you know, reds and yellows and greens over black. It's very bold and graphic, almost like an Art Nouveau design with a lot of kind of foliage and florals, you know, the namesake flowers. Right. Are you looking at a cover like this right now? Well, I'm trying to, but the, the, it's been adapted. Been, and there have been so many other... Yeah, the adaptations uh, now have... Uh, filled the internet with with flowers in the attic content. Try flowers in the attic pocket books, because I think this cover is pretty iconic. The first one actually shows some open shutters of a of an attic window, and then inside there's kind of a haunted girl's face lit from below. Okay. And if you were to open yeah. and if you were to open that cover, you would see uh, her in kind of a creepy ghostly pose uh, with uh, in weird lighting. Her siblings around her. Just kind of a, a clearly a an old timey family photo where something has gone terribly wrong. And there's a there's a there's a half uncle hovering over that. <laughs> Is that right? A ghostly? I think uh, so. Go, a, ghostly half uncle. Ghostly half uncle. Look out for the ghostly half uncle with his creepy hands. Oh yeah, and they're they're all very blonde and seem very scared. So the editor just credited the covers with a lot of the and the covers are iconic for the kids who grew up with these books. Um, they made that kind of cover where the something about the the tawdriness or the thrillingness of the book the sensationalism of the book is conveyed with a keyhole mm -hmm. kind of looking and then you have to open up to see what's going on in that world um that became a gimmick that then sold 100 million books and the painter of the image the watercolor on the second page was a woman named jillian hills and so in book illustration circles she was super well known simon and schuster called her their secret weapon or something because 
she did so many iconic covers. She painted this keen painting of the of the <laughs> sad-eyed kids getting spooked by a half-uncle? She did, and Peter Benchley's The Deep, and the original cover for Alice Monroe novels, wow. and Alice Walker novels, and uh, The White Hotel by D.M. Thomas. Um, iconic book covers of the time that kind of had this ghostly water, or um, kind of uh, antiquated watercolor look. Uh-huh. But yeah, but you're right. There's something keen painting-y about it. Uh, and for many years, I don't think it was clear that the Jillian Hills, who was selling millions of uh, incest books, was also the Zuby Zoo singer of the early 60s. No one made this connection? Or the, I mean, I'm sure people had to know, but she had just started a different life and she didn't really have a public life anymore. Again, no internet. You don't know V.C. Andrews is dead and you don't know the Zuby Zoo singer is now painting the Dollinganger siblings. Right. And it, uh, you know, she had a long and successful career doing book covers, and she was instrumental in three different fields, music, art, and film, without anybody really knowing. In recent years, I've been delighted to find that she has been giving interviews and has confirmed for the first time, I think, publicly that, yes, the Jillian Hills that you know of from movie and song um, is also an influential book illustrator, book and magazine illustrator. Um and I'm delighted to say that she now has a new fan following. In 2021, she put out a new record called Lily of Yeah Yeah Style. Eh, it's a little, yes, it's French music, but it's, um, I listen to it. It's, it's, it's a little more kind of breathy, dreamy stuff. Is this connected to her music being used in the, the chess I think it is. Show? I think it's more Zuby Zoo on Mad Men because that oh. is maybe the most memorable scene in the, six or seven years or whatever it was of the show. It went viral immediately. It's exactly her arrangement that Jessica Paré is doing. And so people wanting to hear that song, which they're like, what is this undiscovered 60s classic I've never heard that's you know an instant earworm? People immediately discovered her recording, which was the most iconic and successful one, and found her music through that. So she was able to record a new album. Her voice still sounds great. You know, there's a lot of reverb and breathiness to, so that you don't get the idea that a 71-year-old is singing. But you really don't get the idea that mm. a 71-year-old is singing. And as you can imagine, she's had an amazing life, and I would read her book, but instead she did a podcast. <gasps> there's a there's a Jillian Hills podcast where she tells stories from you know, Kubrick and Antonioni and Serge Gainsbourg and the pop scene of the 50s and B.C. Andrews and her life in publishing. Does she have uh, a co-host? Oh. I think uh-huh. it's not too late. Uh-huh. You may want to send an email, John. Mm. I'd like to be your half-uncle. And that concludes Jillian Hill's entry 588.PS12101. Certificate number 39582 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram have archived us at at Omnibus Project, and our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Our address for email, which was a popular form of written electronic communication, was theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can... You can send us mail at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Ken, it sounds like you're opening the mail over there. We have a big backlog of mail because you, we haven't recorded in a while. Yeah, what do you got? Uh, a listener named Timothy Fay sent us copies of his book called Suburban Dictionary. Oh. 
the subtle slang of bird burbs with bits of folk wisdom. I mean, he had to squeeze this into an Amazon gift text, so it's a little bit abbreviated. Please check Cadillac Desert Piss and Match Solar Panel Whiskey Belt. Feel free to diss. No, Timothy, we would never diss this uh, Gen X slang, or, or Gen X, the suburban slang. Same difference. Garage Mahal. I've heard oh, that. Garage That's Mahal. That's nice. Uh, thank you, Timothy. We also got sent by person or persons unknown, I believe, a copy of Frank Muir and Dennis Warden's humor classic, My Word, a collection of the stories they told on their radio program, My Word. Do you know anything about this British radio program? No. That seems like something that would be more in your wheelhouse, a British radio program. What are you going to read first, the Suburban Dictionary or the complete My Word? I feel like Suburban Dictionary is the type of thing that goes in the bathroom. And My Word seems like, yeah, something to flip through. I mean, I think the reason that there are so many podcast listeners in the UK and uh, maybe the Anzac nations is that there is a long history of storytelling on the radio. You're, you, think it's, you think it's Winston Churchill's fault? I, there are a lot of things I would pin on Winston Churchill, but I don't think it's Winston Churchill's fault. We also got a postcard from our friend Sparky, who just sends us uh, missives from uh, postcards from his various travels, except this one he sent from SeaTac Airport. Washington State he, and the Sub Pop store. He must have had a layover in SeaTac because he bought a Sub Pop postcard at the Sub Pop store, the world's only music store that opens at 6 a.m., I think. Uh, not sure how John feels about that outfit, but here we are. What? How do you feel about Sub Pop? I think Sub Pop is great. Agreed. 100%. Thank you, Sparky. I got more mail, but I can oh. save it for I can save it for future shows, John. Uh, you can hang out uh, with other futurelings in the very active and fun community uh, on Facebook, the Futurelings. Uh, but also there are groups on different social media platforms operating under the Futurelings moniker. And you can support the show, and we encourage you to, at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Different levels of support entitle you to different access to um, gifts and tricks and uh, keys, skeleton keys to the... the uh, Skeleton keys? Yeah, skeleton keys to the mysteries of the world. Uh, there is a, a monthly addenda episode where we take reader mail and uh, also you can like this show, uh, although this show suggested by Ken's brother. Why is he not giving to the show? He bought a shirt. Yeah, all right. Um, uh, but also there are photographs of our show notes. And at a certain level, you can receive the actual physical copy of the notes that we that we make in to, the, to mail? the show in the mail. Do you know what I realized the other day? We now have what? 35 addenda shows. If you, if you've never, cool. if you've never, uh, supported the omnibus Patreon, if you were to support today, you would immediately have access to 35 new omnibus episodes unheard by most other listeners. Some of them soups, dupes, hilarious. Others, well, most of others them. just barely hanging together. <laughs> others really, really phoned in. Those are some of the good ones. <laughs> Uh, oh, and wait, was I supposed to give the new address? If you have a big package you want to send, send it to 18336 Aurora Avenue North, Suite 105, Apartment 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. That's if you have to send us something that you don't think you can send to a P.O. box. Right. 
I don't know what that would be. A, a badger in a cage. It's still going to come into our P.O. box, so please do not send a badger in a cage. This is just how you trick the uh, mailing agency to send it to us. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that that catastrophe, which we so fear may never come, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>